I'd invite you to take your Bibles with me. And turn with me to the book of Hebrews once again. And today we are in chapter 9. Hebrews, the ninth chapter. And when you get there, would you rise out of reverence for God's word as we read this mighty passage together? We'll read verses 1 to 15. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second... Into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, Not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works? To serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant. So that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. This is the holy word of God. You may be seated. This morning, we begin with a question. Do you have 
a perfected conscience before God. Do you have a perfected conscience before God? That is, a conscience that does not doubt, hesitate, or waver, wondering if you will be good enough before a holy God. Have you done enough? Have you prayed enough? Have you done enough good? Or do you stop and wonder, well, maybe none of that is really good enough. Maybe I need to do more. What if God won't accept me? What if he won't accept what I've done is good enough? What if my good deeds have failed his standards? What if my righteous acts are like filthy rags in God's sight? A person's conscience can wave back and forth like a blade of grass blown in the wind. But a perfected conscience, on the other hand, stands confident upon a bedrock of assurance. A perfected conscience must be based on something that is perfect. And that's what we're going to discover this morning as we study our passage together. This morning, we're going to have three main points because there are three main sections. We're going to look first at verses 1 to 7. The layout of the tabernacle. And secondly, we're going to look at verses 8 to 10. The deficiency of the old system. And thirdly, verses 11 to 15. Then we're going to turn to the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So the layout of the tabernacle. The deficiency of the old system. And then the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The author of Hebrews, if you look with me at the first five verses of this chapter, he spends these first five verses describing the layout of the tabernacle that was set up by Moses. God had had ordered Moses to, to make the tabernacle, to set it up in a very specific and precise manner. And this very layout, the same setup, was then used for the temple that King Solomon built much later. It's a very simple layout. As we've said before, it consists of two rooms, two sections. There's the outer room and the inner room. The outer room was known as the holy place, and the inner room was called the most holy place, or sometimes it was called the holy of holies. And then verse 2, if you look with me there, it tells us what was in the outer room. Is the holy place. It says that there was a lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. The lampstand was made of gold, the Old Testament tells us. It's the big menorah that is shaped like a U. You've seen that in Jewish pictures. It has six arms, three arms on the one side, three arms on the the other side, and then the center uh, candlestick in the middle. So it could hold uh, seven oil lamps that would provide light for this room that is known as the holy place. And the lamps were never to go out. And so the oil had to be constantly replenished in the outer room. And then Hebrews talks about this table. It was also made of gold. And it was not a very big table. It was about three feet long, about a foot and a half wide, and stood about two feet high. And upon this table was placed a hot 
new loaf of bread every morning. And this special consecrated bread was known as the bread of the presence. Or in the King James Version, it is called the show bread. Because it was holy. When the bread was replaced by a new loaf the following day, because it was holy, only priests were allowed to eat the old bread that had been removed. And scripture never really explains, it never explores the significance of these two symbols in the outer room, in the most in, in the holy place. These two, sim, these two symbols of continual light from the lampstand and continual bread set daily before God. But even though scripture doesn't explain it, I think we can make a pretty good guess as to what these two things symbolize in the tabernacle, and then later in the temple. Because in the pagan nations surrounding Israel, the priests would set before their idol in their temple, they would set before it food and drink as offerings, for it was thought the God would eat the food and drink the beverages. It was their way of providing sustenance for their God. But in the case of Israel, this act of setting bread before God, it seems to be different. It is more like it was more like this burning lampstand to begin with. It represents the light of God. God is light, it says in 1 John. In him there is no darkness at all. And Jesus declared himself to be the light of the world in John 8, 12. And then the bread of the presence, the showbread, it seems to represent God's provision and sustenance for his people. That he is the continual provider. And Jesus took this metaphor upon himself in John 6.40 when he said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never be hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. And so these two things, these two items in the holy place, the golden menorah, lampstand, and the table with the bread of the presence, they were in the, that outer room. And as I said, these two things had to be continually maintained every day. Pure beaten olive oil for the lamps would have to be constantly refilled and the loaf of bread would have to be replaced every day with a fresh loaf. And so verse 6 tells us, if you look there, verse 6, these, these preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. And so regular priests could go in and out of the fir first room, the outer section, because they had to perform their daily duties. But in contrast, and this is the contrast that Hebrews is highlighting for us, in contrast, the inner room, known as the most holy place, the holy of holies, no one could go in there. Because that is where the Shekinah glory of the living God dwelled. The thick curtain separated the holy place from the most holy place. And so if you look at verse 4, Hebrews mentions two things. The golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant. Now, the, now we know from scripture that only the Ark of the Covenant was in the most holy place. In the Holy of Holies, there's only one thing, one object, the Ark of the Covenant. And the golden altar of incense was actually in the first room. It was in the holy place. The burning coals of fire on that little altar 
was another thing that had to be maintained daily, day after day after day, so that fire with fragrant incense was continually burning before the God of Israel. Now, it's, it's odd here because Hebrews seems to put this golden altar of incense, he seems to put it in the inner room here. But Hebrews knows exactly which room that altar was. He knows that very well. But what he is doing here is he is associating the altar of incense very closely with the most holy place because he knows that the altar of incense was specially connected. This little altar, the altar of incense, it was specially connected with the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippurim, which was the one day in the whole year that only one man, the high priest, could enter behind the curtain into the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was. On that day, Aaron, the high priest, would take a censer with him. And a censer is, is a container that holds incense. And so he would take a censer, and he would open that censer. We don't necessarily know what it looked like, but he would take live burning coals from the altar of incense. He'd put that in his censer. And the incense mixed together with the hot coals would then create a bunch of smoke. And this smoke served a very specific purpose as Aaron the high priest entered into the presence of God in the Holy of Holies. So what was the specific purpose of this smoke? It was to save Aaron's life. Because the smoke shielded Aaron from seeing the fullness of the glory of God. Because what if Aaron gazed directly on the glory of God? Well, of course, he would fall down dead. And so that smoke taken from that altar of incense, or the smoke created from the coals taken from the altar of incense, served a specific purpose on the Day of Atonement. This is all to show that the altar of incense in the outer room, the holy place, needed to be maintained daily by the priests, but it is connected closely with the inner room. And by making this tight association between the altar of incense and the way the high priest had to enter into the most holy place, Hebrews is reminding us just how holy that room was, just how special it was. In it, as I said, was the Ark of the Covenant. And as I've said before, you've heard me say before, the Ark of the Covenant represented the throne of God on earth. The lid of the ark was called the mercy seat. And in one piece with the lid were two sculpted cherubim angels facing each other with their wings outspread, covering the center. The cherubim from scripture are bodyguard angels. And so the imagery here is that God sits between them on the ark, sitting as king on his throne between his bodyguards. And God told Moses directly in Leviticus 16.2 that on the day of atonement, he says, I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. But the Ark of the Covenant is also a box. It's a chest. It's a trunk. And inside it, Hebrews says that there were three items, a jar of manna, Aaron's budded staff, and the two tablets of stone with the Ten Commandments inscribed on them. 
There is significance to all three of these things. The preserved manna reminded the children of Israel of God's provision during their wandering for 40 years in the wilderness. As God provided bread for his people. On the day they entered into the promised land, the manna stopped. And so if God has provided for his people like that, in those extreme conditions, he is faithful to be trusted that he will continue to provide for their needs. That's what the manna reminded the people of. Aaron's budded staff points to the authority of Aaron as high priest and Moses as mediator of the law. What happened is that people had been grumbling against the leadership of Moses and Aaron. And other men thought that they should have a go at being the high priest. But through Moses, God told them to carve their names into their staffs. And Aaron should do the same thing. And then they were to put all those staffs, take them together and put them in the tabernacle. And the staff that sprouted almond blossoms would demonstrate God's chosen one. And in the morning, it was Aaron's staff that had blossomed. But even more, it had even produced ripe almonds. This was a supernatural sign from God con confirming that Aaron was his chosen high priest. And so in the larger sense, this demonstrated to all the people that everything Moses and Aaron were doing and saying were coming from God himself. And so his budded staff is a reminder of the authority of the high priest. And the third item in that ark is the two tablets of stone in which were inscribed the terms of the covenant abbreviated in the Ten Commandments. There are two, two tablets because there are two copies, one for God and one for the people, the two sides of the covenant treaty. And they are written on stone. Because, just as we use the expression, they are written in stone. That is, they are eternal and unchanging. And so with these three items of the Ark of the Covenant, we are reminded that God is the great provider, God's authority is final, and that He is a covenant-keeping God, both in the blessings for obedience and the cursings for disobedience. In verse 5, Hebrews finishes description of the tabernacle by drawing our attention to the glorious cherubim overshadowing the mercy seat. If you're reading out of the NIV this morning, it will say atonement cover. This is the lid of the ark, which is also the seat where the living God sat on the day of atonement. And this cover had to be sprinkled with blood by the high priest on that day. It is like the high priest was sprinkling the blood representing his own sin plus the sins of the people at the feet of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And this is the picture that Hebrews wants us to be thinking about as we move on to consider the perfection of Christ's offering. Verses 6 and 7 again say, These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. So that's our first section this morning, talking about the layout of the tabernacle. Our second point this morning looks at verses 8 to 10, 
And here is where Hebrews begins to talk about the deficiency of the old system. So verse 8 says, By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places, he means the holy of holies, is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing. Then into verse 9, which is symbolic for the present age. Let's pay attention to what Hebrews is saying here. He is saying that the Holy Spirit deliberately designed the layout of the two rooms of the tabernacle for a specific purpose. To symbolically represent two ages, two covenants, two systems of sacrifice. And so the outer room or the outer section, the holy place, it symbolizes the old covenant with the old system of priests and rituals and festivals and regulations and ceremonies and sacrifices. And while this old system has been in place, there is no entrance into the real presence of the living God. It was all symbolic of entrance, but it, it wasn't truly real. It was a shadow of the reality that was to come. And just like the Holy of Holies was shut off to priests, and it was shut off to the people, so the realities of God's presence was shut off and closed to the people in the old system under the old covenant. They could not pass through that curtain that separated God from his people. The rest of verse 9 into verse 10 tells us this. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, the regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. That last phrase there is important. Until the time of reformation. This informs us that the old covenant, the old system, represented symbolically by the outer room, was a temporary measure. It was a stopgap. It was a band-aid solution that was set in place until the time of Reformation. It was looking forward to when things would be put into proper arrangement. This reminds me of Galatians chapter 3. It says, But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So Hebrews is saying something very similar here. But we ask, well why did the old system need a reformation? Why was this necessary? And the answer was back in verse 9. Look with me there. Verse 9, it was because the gifts and sacrifices being offered in the old system could not perfect the conscience of the person drawing near to worship. And that's why it needed reformation. It could not perfect the conscience of the person drawing near to worship. And that raises two more very important questions. Well, why was it necessary? Why is that necessary for the worshiper's conscience to be perfected? That's question number one. The second one is, why couldn't those sacrifices do the job 
of perfecting the worshiper's conscience. So why was it necessary in the first place for the worshiper's conscience to be perfected? And then why couldn't those sacrifices do the job of perfecting the worshiper's conscience? Well, to answer the first question, it is absolutely necessary for a worshiper's conscience to be perfected. That's absolutely necessary. If you come to God with a tainted sacrifice, one that you know is not good enough to truly take away your sin before a righteous and holy God, then you are always going to be wondering, am I right with God? Is God right with me? Is there truly peace between me and God? What if God is still angry at my sin? What if my guilt remains? What if I'm still under his wrath? How can the blood of a lamb or a bull or a goat truly substitute in place of my blood? I'm shaking like a leaf. Oh, I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips and we are a people of unclean lips. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with a thousand rams, with ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgressions, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? It was the prophet Micah who asked all of these questions. And the implicit answer to all of those questions is none of these offerings will be truly good enough. King David understood this as well in Psalm 51 when he was confessing his sin with Bathsheba. Verse 16 says, you will not delight in sacrifice or I will give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Both Micah and David understood that the sacrifices in and of themselves were not enough to perfect the conscience of the worshiper who offered them. A perfect conscience can only flow out of a perfect sacrifice because only a perfect sacrifice can be fully trusted in as satisfying the wrath of God over sin. So only a perfect sacrifice can truly soothe the conscience in perfect peace and serenity. The second question was, well, why couldn't those sacrifices in the old system, why couldn't they perfect the conscience of the worshiper who offered them? The answer, because animal blood cannot truly substitute for human blood. That is, an animal cannot really take the place of an image of God-bearing human being. Only a human can take the place of another human. And so, in the mind of the worshiper, making that offering of an animal sacrifice, there would always be something niggling in the back of his mind. Something doesn't quite add up here. This lamb that I'm offering, how can it truly act as my substitute? I should be lying there dead on this altar for my sin against the holy God, and yet this lamb has died instead of me. But a sheep is not like a man. So there's, there's an obvious incongruity here. There's a lack of correspondence here. It would not be able to perfect anyone's conscience, not fully. But what if? 
Let's ask the hypothetical question. What if another human being substituted in death? Would that perfect the conscience? Only if it was a perfectly innocent and sinless human being. Because if it was a sinful human taking the place of another sinful human, then your conscience still wouldn't be any better off. Because then you'd ask yourself, well, how can a sinful and tainted offering take away my sin? A sinner in place of another sinner is still sinful before a holy God. And so this is the deficiency of the old system. An animal sacrifice cannot perfect the conscience of the one offering it because it is not really a corresponding substitute. An animal cannot truly take the place of a human. So the worshiper cannot ever be fully confident that real shalom peace has been achieved between himself and God. So his conscience never settles, but is always disturbed, never at rest. Christian, as you approach the living and holy God in worship, you have a perfected conscience before God through faith in Jesus Christ. Why? Because a human being, not an animal, but a man, took your place and died as your substitute. And not just any man, a perfect man, a sinless man, a righteous man. And so you do not have to wonder or doubt or waver in your conscience before God because you can be confident that a perfect substitute has taken your place. And so God's wrath against you has been fully satisfied. Our third point this morning, verses 11 to 15, we now turn to the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Verses 11 and 12. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, to the holy of holies, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. And so that first section, the first rune that represents the old system is deficient because it cannot perfect anyone's conscience. And now we turn to the one who offered a perfect sacrifice in the second section, the true holy of holies, which represents the great and more perfect tabernacle, the heavenly temple, not made with human hands where God dwells in holiness. And this is what we saw in the last chapter, chapter 8. But here in verse 12, it now focuses, it focuses us in on what Jesus took along with him when he entered the true heavenly temple. He didn't take the blood of goats and calves. He took his own divine blood. And because his blood was divine, it secured an eternal redemption. Not a temporary redemption, not a limited expiation, not a temporary atonement. It is infinite blood. Therefore, it is an infinite offering. So it is an eternal offering. The word redemption signifies the idea of payment. It is an eternal redemption. That means it's an eternal payment. And if it is an eternal payment, then the debt 
has been paid in full. There's there's no more debt to owe before God. An absolutely perfect sacrifice was offered before an absolutely perfect God. And so it was absolutely satisfactory. Verses 13 and 14. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And these two verses, verses 13 and 14, Hebrews makes a certain kind of argument. It's called the lesser to the greater. If the lesser premise is true, then how much more true is the greater premise? So if the blood of animals brings outward temporary sanctification so that the flesh, the outward person, will be ceremonially clean for a time, Hebrews says, how much more true is it that the divine blood of the Messiah himself in offering his own unblemished self to God, will bring inward purification. Take note of that, brothers and sisters. The old sacrifices only purified someone on the outside for a short time. But the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ purifies the inside. It purifies our conscience. So that we are no longer trusting in the dead works of the law to save us. For they cannot save. They are dead works that lead to death. Instead, with pure consciences, now we have confidence to worship and serve the living God in spirit and in truth. Our relationship with him is no longer oriented toward death. Now it is oriented toward life. Because we are in proper relationship. We have shalom peace with the living God. Verse 15. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant. So that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. This verse, this final verse 15 brings everything together. Jesus Christ is the perfect mediator of the new covenant, the one prophesied by Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31. Those who are called are the elect of God who receive the Sabbath rest that he has promised. And the basis of the eternal inheritance is the perfect death that has occurred, a death that redeems us from every single transgression that broke God's holy law under the first covenant. This is the heart of, This is the very core of the gospel. We had transgressed before a holy God, and so we were under his wrath. But in his great love, God provided a perfect Savior with a perfect sacrifice, and all who are called by God will receive the promised eternal inheritance. So the main takeaway from this passage this morning is the question, do you have a perfected conscience today. If you are not a believer here this morning, then you do not have a perfected conscience before God because you are still trusting in yourself and not in Christ. You are still under God's righteous wrath. 
I encourage you in the strongest possible terms. Repent of your sin, falling on your knees with your face in the ground, turning from your sin with tears of repentance. Put your faith in Jesus Christ alone. Only he can save you from the wrath of God on the day of judgment. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you do have such a perfected conscience. If you feel like maybe you don't, then you need to reflect deeply on the gospel. That a perfect high priest offered a perfect sacrifice to a perfect God, one that redeemed his people perfectly. And this reinforces the fact that salvation cannot be by works to any degree. Not even one good work can be added to the perfect sacrifice of Christ. Because whatever good works you try to add to Christ's sacrifice, you are implicitly saying that Christ's sacrifice was not sufficient, that therefore it was not perfect enough. But when you trust completely in the perfection of Christ's sacrifice by faith, there are no good works to add to it. Jesus Christ has entered into the second section, into the inner room, into the most holy place, the holy of holies, not of this creation or made by human hands, but into the very heavenly presence of God. And he brought with him a perfect sacrifice himself. And he presented his own blood before God. And because it was perfect, God accepted it as satisfactory. And Jesus sat down. Job done. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you once again for the might and power of your word. The reminder in our passage this morning that Christ has offered a perfect sacrifice. And a perfect sacrifice perfects 